The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. A lot of things are happening. The John Brown Volunteers and the Center for Political Innovation is on fire. Alex Saab needs our support. And furthermore, we are headed for Nicaragua very soon. We will be headed to Nicaragua to monitor the elections that are happening uh, on November 7th. We will be there for the vote. So plenty of things going on, but I never want to miss an opportunity to jump on to this stream and engage with all of you because it is a deep pleasure of mine to be able to sit down with all of you and talk uh, what makes someone a fanatic, right? Um, writing it down. A fanatic. I'm always looking forward to any opportunity to engage with all of you. It's deeply, deeply a pleasure. And so I'm here. I may fade sooner than I usually do. It is already almost midnight. Uh, the stream started two minutes and 27 seconds ago at, at 20 to midnight. So I may fade sooner than I normally do, but I just wanted to take the opportunity to get on here and engage with all of you. Shout out to all of you. Shout out to all of you. Um, plenty that we can talk about here tonight. So the way this works is I generally, I give my opening remarks and the whole time I'm taking my pen and I'm writing down the super chat questions. Then I do the roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations. Uh, we find out who's there, where they're at, uh, who they are, etc. And then after that, I answer your super chat questions. And then we're done. And that's how the show tends to work here. Now, usually my opening remarks go on for like an hour. Today, my opening remarks are not going on for a whole hour, I don't think. But then again, who knows? Perhaps amid my planned planned rant, I will stumble upon something deeply profound and keep talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. But I don't think that is the case. Um, I don't think that that's the case, but you never really know, right? I mean, you, you know that, how often has that happened in your life? You're talking to somebody and uh, you stumble upon a point in the conversation that leads you to another point, that leads you to another point that leads you to another point, that leads you to another point, that leads you to another point. And next thing you know, your conversation went on for hours longer than you thought it was going to go on. That kind of thing happens. That kind of thing does happen. So I'm not guaranteeing 100% it won't happen tonight. But uh, because I feel tired and because it's been a long day and because of the fact that, uh, you know, it's almost midnight, I have a feeling I won't go on that long tonight, but there is there is no no full on guarantee of that. So welcome everybody. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, and we'll jump into the opening remarks. I'll be writing your super chats down as we do that so they will get answered in the second half of the program. So there we go, folks. You have seen the videos by now, most likely. Uh, we had a small demonstration today in Union Square 
And it was an anti-imperialist speak-out that we had in Union Square. It was to free Alex Saab. It was against imperialism. We had speakers who touched on the situation in Haiti. We had speakers who touched on China and the Belt and Road Initiative. We had speakers who talked about the strikes going on at Kellogg's and at, and at John Deere and at, uh, and at the California nurses. Uh, we had speakers who touched on China. I already mentioned that. We had speakers who touched on many different topics. Um, communists aren't supporting StrikeWave. I think they are. Um, um, so there you go. It was an interesting demonstration. And at one point, an individual, uh, so I, it was interesting. So we went into, you know, Union Square in New York City. Union Square is a great place to have demonstrations. Um, oh, you just read the book. I'm glad you liked it. Zillet, Zillet, thank you very much for your super chat and for your comments. Union Square is a great place to have demonstrations. Um, that's why so many people do their demonstrations there. The last time we called a demonstration in Union Square, we made the mistake. We made the mistake. Um, all right, 1948, 1960, four U.S. communist parties. Um, Last time we had a demonstration in Union Square, we made the mistake of doing it on the same day that there is a farmer's market uh, on, what is it, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. They have a farmer's market in Union Square. So this time, and we, we went and had a demonstration on Saturday a couple months ago, or maybe it was just a month ago. It was a disaster because there was the farmer's market all over the square, which made it very, very hard to find any space. And then in the area in which there was space, we were competing with the Black Hebrew Israelites, which is a black nationalist organization. We were also competing with the anti-vaccinations protesters. And uh, it was kind of a miracle that we pulled off our rally. I believe that was our 9-11 rally that we had, but it still happened. It was a success. And shout out to everyone who was there, uh, by the way, because it was we were crammed into that one little corner of the square with the farmer's market all around us. We had the, the Black Hebrew Israelites shouting on one side. Thank you, Neil Frazier, for your super chat. Much appreciated. We had the Black Hebrew Israelites on one side, and we had the anti-vaccination folks on the other side, and it was it was crazy. But now, this today was not as crazy, because we made a point of picking a day in which the farmer's market was not taking up most of Union Square. It wasn't taking up most of Union Square. So because of that, because the farmer's market was not taking up most of Union Square, we just set up. We set up at one o'clock and started doing our thing. Now, around the same time that we set up, an anti-vaccination church set up. Now, I don't even know what church this was. Um, and it's quite interesting to me. It wasn't just a church, right? Because churches are generally indoors, right? They, that's why they, it's a building. Usually churches tend to be inside of a building, you know, with a cross on it, et cetera. But they were some kind of anti-vaccination church. Um, but they were anti-vaccinations. They had signs like fear Satan or fear hell, not the virus. Um, you know, uh, they, they had some other signs against vaccinations and they were having their church service outside. Uh, like us, they did not have a permit uh, and they just had their sound system and they were doing their church service. And, uh, you know, we were we didn't have a permit and we were doing our Marxist rally. 
Um, then we were, it was kind of a battle of the bands, right? They would turn up their speaker, so we would then turn up our speaker, and it was just kind of a back and forth. We were on one side, the south end of Union Square. They were on the other. We weren't getting in their way. They weren't getting in ours. We were both kind of turning up. It was fear God, not the virus. Thank you, Char Char, darling. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just doing our thing. But then all of a sudden, this, this, this man ran, ran up to me while I was speaking. Um, and this man was agitated. Uh, you can watch the video. He was out of his mind. I couldn't make out what he was saying. I was trying to just keep talking, but that man was, whee, he was agitated. He was, he had his glasses and he had his spit coming out of his mouth and, oh, he was fired up. Um, you know, and I, I tried my best to just de-escalate the situation, make clear that we were not his enemy. We were not opposed to Christians. Um, you know, uh, oh, David Fox says, watch the John Brown volunteers at Union Square on YouTube. Please accept this donation for them. Keep up the excellent work. You're very welcome, David Fox. You're very welcome, David Fox. It was a challenging day, I'll be honest. Um, and that guy was foaming at the mouth and and he was fired up and we just, you know, and of course, you know, um, he was coming at me because I had the microphone, um, but, um, and I couldn't even, I've watched the video and I've been able to kind of understand what he was on about, but at the time I, I couldn't figure out what he was saying. It was like, do you want to listen to some rock and roll music? Do you, I mean, I, I didn't, but at the time, I think what he was saying was he felt like we were ruining his his church services music or something. Well, they were ru ruining our Marxist rally. Again, we had just as much of a right to be there as, as as that guy. Now, I've received some interesting messages about who that guy may or may not have been, and I'm not going to comment on that. Other people can talk about that. The video's up there. I am not going to comment on that at this time. Uh, I did not know who that individual was. Um, you know, I, I just tried to offer him some kindness um, and tried to, you know, talk about the mental health crisis and how fired up people are. And when he saw that we weren't going to rise to his level, right, we weren't going to, you know, we weren't, he wanted to fight. He came in there ready to fight and we weren't going to fight with him, right? We were going to be friendly to him, but we weren't going to let him step on us, right? Um, at that point, uh, at that point, you know, and, and, and you know, Keaton Mansfield and, and other people that were there, you know, Chris and, and and other folks, you know, they 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 stepped in there and made you know made sure he wasn't you know Joey and others he wasn't gonna knock me over. Um, but uh, but you know uh, you know I mean once he saw we weren't gonna meet his rage with rage of our own, we were gonna stand our ground. We weren't gonna go anywhere. Um, but at the same time, we were going to just you know continue doing what we're doing. Um, and we weren't we were not we were gonna offer him. Um, we were going to offer him compassion and and sympathy, not rather than rage. He just he kind of he saw he wasn't going to get anywhere, and he moved on. And it was kind of an exciting moment. It was kind of an exciting confrontation. Um, but it makes you think. I mean, I, I'll tell you. You know, New York City. You always have crazy people walking around the streets of New York City. I mean, you always have people walking around who talk to themselves. Uh, you know, you always have people that are doing drugs on the corner. Uh, you know, you got, you know, I mean, this is this is part of urban life, right? As you see homeless people, you see people that have mental health problems, et cetera. But since the pandemic, uh, it has really escalated. Um, you know, there's a higher level of unemployment, um, for example. Um, there's a higher level of unemployment. Uh, there's a lot of people who, you know, maybe they did have a job or they did have someplace to go and now they're just kind of on their own. Um, and since the pandemic, uh, it has really 
really escalated. Um, and, you know, you have to, on the one hand, it's like you don't want to, you have to be careful how you talk about this because there are some right-wing folks who talk about this and they they just hate these people. And they just, they consider these people to just be garbage and they just, they want all these people to be killed or locked up. And, you know, and that's not my approach. I have compassion for these folks. I see them as victims of the system. I see them as people that the capitalist system is driven over the edge or maybe it's just life circumstances um, but, uh, you know, I don't see them as, um, you know, I don't, I don't see these people as my enemy. Um, so when I talk about there being a problem with many of these people, um, I don't want to make it sound like they themselves are the problem. I want to say that they are symptoms of a bigger problem, which is capitalism. Um, you know, uh, that's what I want to say. And that's how I want to see it. But um, at the same time, not not all these folks are necessarily pleasant to be around, uh, honestly. Uh, some of them can be a lot rather, rather unfriendly. And, you know, it's not my job to go out and be all their best buds and all of that. But at the same time, I, I don't buy into this right wing, you know, the what is it? They call it NIMBY, not in my backyard, NIMBY. I don't buy into the NIMBY stuff, right? And I don't believe these folks should be dehumanized. And I don't think that these folks should be treated as pariahs. And, you know, when Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York City, he really made life miserable for homeless people. Uh, you know, he, you know, he very much, you know, he made it illegal to sleep on a park bench. Um, you know, they, they put these, um, you know, they, they, you know, you go to the New York City, the, the subways, they have these benches, but they're like proofed so that no one can lay down on them. They got like dividers on them. So no one can lay down, stuff like that, that, you know, it, it's not not good, right? It's a desire to, you know, and and then a lot of what Rudy Giuliani did was criminalize these people um, and just, you know, make it so they would get arrested uh, and beaten up, um, you know, and just, you know, make all kinds of little laws that the police could use to arrest these people and rough them up, right? Um, you know, and that's what they talk about, broken window policing. A lot of that was, you know, it's like, okay, make it a crime to sleep on a park bench so that, you know, okay, you know, fine. The police arrest the guy for sleeping on a park bench. Well, but then, you know, they beat him up a whole bunch and then they charge him with resisting arrest. And then he's in the jail and he's not, you know, sleeping on a park bench anymore. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of, it's that kind of thing where you just, you know, it's, and that's, that's the whole thing. There is a dark and evil side to the New York City Police Department. There really is, um, you know, and you hear about some cases where, you know, you look into it and it's like, you know, you talk about man's inhumanity to man. Uh, it's very extreme. You know, there was a case where there was a homeless man. There was a homeless man who broke, who broke into, he was, he was cold. He was freezing cold and it was cold. And he broke in, he broke into some place to keep warm. And that was his defense was that he broke in to keep warm. He was a homeless man and he broke into, you know, a building to, to keep warm basically. Um, and I guess he was arrested for this and he, he was like making a defense around this. And then on Rikers Island, uh, he was put into a prison cell and he was, he, he was cooked alive basically in this cell. Uh, you know, they, you know, they turned up the heat so much that he was overheated and killed in the cell. And the press reported on this in kind of this gleeful, joking way. Like, isn't that ironic, right? He wanted to be warm, so we just... But you have to wonder, like, is that an accident? You know, I mean, I hate to be a... You know, I mean, I, I just... There's part of my mind that I don't want to listen to, that here's that. 
and has has dealt with some mean spirited right wing cops. And I part of me thinks that, you know, okay, I mean, it was like it was technically it was like some kind of malfunction at Rikers Island. But part of me just thinks, you know, that there's some kind of sadistic evil cop who's got some twisted sense of humor that thought, you know, this guy was was homeless and broke into a window and is tr- broke into a building to keep warm. So we're going to burn him alive. Won't that be ironic? You know, and that, and, and he could laugh. I mean, you know, and it, and it's like, again, I don't have evidence that this happened. I'm not alleging even that it really happened, but part of me hears that anecdote about what happened, about how this homeless man who had broken into a building to keep warm, got burned alive on Rikers Island, got, you know, got, you know, heated to death basically. And it makes me feel like, you know, part of me just, I can just hear the sadistic cops saying it right now and laughing about it, you know, having dealt with, having dealt with police officers and uh, before, and, and part of me, I just have a hard time thinking that was an accident, right? But accidents do happen. They do happen, right? And I mean, it could just be a weird twist of fate, but I just, I have a hard time believing that. And, you know, the, a lot of the stories that have come out about a lack of accountability in Rikers Island, about unexplained deaths and, and stuff like that. Part of me, part of me just feels like that story, like, you know, I, I don't know. I have a hard time. I have a hard time even just thinking about that story. And the fact that it was reported in the media is almost as like a laughing kind of gleeful kind of thing. It's like, no, it's not gleeful when someone dies, you know, and especially someone who, yeah, I mean, someone who dies. I mean, it's just, oh, you know, I mean, it's just the conditions that people are in. This is the evilness of this system. This is the evilness of this system. And, uh, you know, so we go out and we are trying to build a community of people. Uh, you know, we have love in our hearts. We try to give people uh, compassion and kindness. Uh, we try to bring forward our message of socialism. And um, that's what we're doing. And people are coming around us. People like what we have to say. People like what we have to say. People find us attractive. They like our energy. Uh, they like our awareness. We try to empower people. You know, Joey, uh, who's one of the John Brown volunteers, did a great job great job with a new song that he wrote about city building and the city building tendency. That was great stuff. And uh, Lily, a great John Brown volunteer, who's a college student. She's up in Boston, but she came down for the weekend. Uh, you know, she gave a great presentation and and Keaton did great. Some of Keaton's best remarks didn't get recorded. I was so frustrated. Keaton gave a great great set of comments about anti-communist propaganda on the TV. And, and that was amazing. And I wish, I wish that had been recorded. I'm frustrated that, that we didn't get video of that. Cause that was good stuff. Uh, Kiki, um, you know, Kiki did, did some great stuff speaking and William, William Kamakaro from the New York city Bolivarian circle a Venezuelan American activist, uh, gave a great update on the Alex Saab case. And, it was a great, it was a great demonstration. And, you know, I, I think it's great. You know, I think it's great to see people out in the street, uh, got out a lot of leaflets and palm cards about the Alex Saab case. Um, this is good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, we need more of that. And um, if you're, you know, if you're in an area where people, you could put up some posters about Alex Saab, I encourage you to do that. Uh, if you could have a little speak out or a rally about Alex Saab, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, if you could, you know, I mean, we have the reading groups around the country. People have started reading groups around our manual called We Are City Builders. Um, you can get a copy of the manual. I can ship you manuals on a bulk rate if you want to start a reading group. That's a great way to do it. Meet people, 
get together with them, discuss the manual, and who knows where the conversation can go with that manual. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of different texts in it from Mao, from Lenin, from others. Uh, that's a great place to start things and, uh, you know, trying to keep things on a class struggle economic level. I don't care about Dave Chappelle, all right? So just don't ask me about Dave Chappelle. I, I don't care. I mean, and I just, I'm not going to throw down about that and have half the internet love me and half the internet hate me. I don't want to talk about that, right? I want to talk about how we need a government of action that will fight for working families. That is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how the big banks and corporations and monopolies are ripping off America's working families, driving this country into deeper poverty as they've done to Asia and Africa and Latin America already. The global system of monopoly capitalism is grinding countries all over the world into poverty. And in order to keep their power, they're threatening a new world war. They're taking moves against Russia. They're taking moves against China, against Cuba, against Venezuela, against Nicaragua, against Iran. And that's not what we need. We need peace. We need democracy. We need equality. We need jobs. Um, that's what we need. Um, that's what we need. And that's what I want to talk about. That is what I want to talk about. And that's what I want people to talk about. And uh, and that's that's the kind of level I want to have this on, that opposing capitalism in our time means opposing imperialism. And imperialism is not a policy. Imperialism is a system. All right. China's real estate market problems. China Imperialism is not a policy. Uh, it's a system. Right. China. And it's a system. Um, and it is a system that's collapsing. It's in decay. Uh, new sanctions. Um, it's in decay. And we need to resist that system. Uh, we need to build solidarity. The working people of the United States need to stand in solidarity with the people around the world who are fighting for their national liberation. Um, and we ultimately need to support the emerging alternative, the Eurasian alternative centered around Russia and China. A new economy is emerging on the globe. And this new economy that is emerging, um, this new economy is one where profits are not in command. Sure, there's a market sector. Sure, there's private corporations. But the state controls the means of production, private and public. The state is in command. Profits are not in command. People come before profits. Human development is unleashed. Look, folks, I, I, I just have to say this. It's a bit of a downer, okay? It's not, but it must be said, okay? The body count of capitalism never gets discussed, right? For example, Haiti right, is a country that is under the grip of free market neoliberalism. And all over Haiti, people live in such extreme conditions of poverty. Uh, they're heating their homes and cooking their food with charcoal. They're burning wood and using the charcoal to heat their homes. And of course, the country has been largely deforested because of that. But it's because people don't have modern heating systems in their homes. They don't have modern cooking systems. And so the way Haitians are living, they're living by burning wood and making it into charcoal in order to, to live. Now, I mean, I, I, that's capitalism. That is capitalism. That is the capitalist system. That's what the capitalist system right, uh, has offered, right? For office. That's what they're offering. That is capitalism in Haiti. That system that has driven so many people into poverty, where people are eating dirt mixed with oil. I mean, that is capitalism. That is what capitalism has to offer. Um, and, uh, you know, since this pandemic has started, 
the deaths of malnutrition, malnutrition-related deaths have escalated. One, you know, one estimate that I've heard for malnutrition-related deaths since the pandemic, one estimate that I've heard, shout out to you, Richard Bruce, welcome, glad you're with us. One estimate that I have heard is that there have been one million malnutrition-related deaths per month since the pandemic began. Now, I I am I want to get that number checked. Obviously, I don't want to just announce that to the world as undisputed fact. Obviously, there's no one sitting there counting exactly, exactly, you know, but that is one estimate that I've heard. This is capitalism. Capitalism is a holocaust. Every day, capitalism is is a holocaust, right? Right. Third worldists. Wait. I mean, it's killing people. I mean, how can you have a modern a modern country where people are still heating their homes and cooking their food with charcoal, right? I mean, how can you how can you have people? I mean, this capitalism is is a holocaust. Um, you know, uh, it it is, and people don't want to talk about this. And then they give you some number about gulags, or they give you some number about a famine in Ukraine, and that's supposed to say capitalism. You can't have socialism. I'm sorry, the the death toll of capitalism. I mean, how many wars have been waged for capitalist profits? 20 million workers sent to their deaths in World War I so that France and Britain and Germany and the American imperialists and Austro the Austro-Hungarian Empire could battle over who got to colonize the developing world. Uh, you know, there's, there's one example, uh, World War II, you know, the Nazis supported by the British and the Americans to prop up. Uh, CPI should publish a black book of capitalism. There'd be, I mean, it'd be too long. I mean, I, you know, so they could, you know, propped up the Nazis and fascism to fight against communism. And then ultimately that led to an imperialist rivalry. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, capitalism, you know, I mean, you know, with the, the Holocaust punch card machines that were designed by IBM, you read that book, IBM and the Holocaust. I mean, I mean, if you were to write a black book of capitalism, right? I, I mean, I mean, if you were to, go over all the deaths this system has caused, but then they just, they throw some number at you, right? I was debating Stefan Molyneux and he's like, oh, how many deaths would, how many deaths would cause him to pause? Well, none of those deaths count. People dying under capitalism is just natural. That's just how it's supposed to be or else it's not real capitalism. I mean, holding back economic development, keeping countries in poverty, keeping people poor, you know, I mean, that's what capitalism does. Whereas it's socialism that turned Russia and China into superpowers. It's socialism that made, you know, Cuba, compare Cuba to Haiti, gave Cuba a healthcare system that's, that's the, you know, the envy of people all over the world that, you know, modernized and industrialized Cuba and provided so many people with, with housing and jobs and education. I mean, I, literacy. And I mean, you, you can go country after country after country. When countries have an anti-capitalist revolution, um, you know, um, Putin, capitalism. Comments. Uh, when countries have an anti-capitalist revolution, uh, the result is generally construction and building and raising people out of poverty. That is generally the result. And um, and there has been huge economic development. Meanwhile, capitalism is grinding countries into poverty. 27 different states in the United States, they're unpaving the roads at this point. They're they are taking what used to be paved roads. They have a device called a reclaimer. They take up the asphalt and they pulverize it. And where you used to have a paved road, you have a dirt road. Well, I never claimed to be a brilliant economist, but if you're replacing 
a paved road with a dirt road. Something's deeply wrong in your economy. Profits in command does not work, right? And the system that allows the anarchy of production, the chaos of the market to rule isn't working. Um, and socialism needs to be raised as an alternative. Now, obviously, you know, there were problems with the Soviet model of socialism, right? There's certainly a role for the market. But at the end of the day, we need a government of action that will fight for working families and people's needs need to come before the profits of the few. I don't think that's a very, very uh, radical message. Um, I don't think that's a very, very radical message, uh, but I think it's kind of a common sense message. Um, that's what I think, but you would, you would think that, wouldn't you? But, uh, um, there you go. Illiberalism, Pope slamming capitalism, writing it all down. So that's what we're here on here to say. We said it in Union Square today. Uh, I say it on these live streams. I say it at conferences. Uh, now FYI, tomorrow, the last Saxton lecture goes public, right? Those of you who gave a donation got to see it early, but it goes public tomorrow. Um, we had the Saxton lectures. We're going to be having a website pretty soon, thesaxtonlectures.com to promote the Saxton lectures. We're going to do a special outreach for thing to get people to watch the Saxton lectures. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a message here. Uh, we're trying to do the right thing. Thank you, Andrew Saturn. We're trying to do the right thing. Uh, there's, you know, it's a world of lies out there. There's a world of deception, a world of hate, a world of alienation. We're trying to do the right thing. Um, we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, we're trying to offer people love. We're trying to offer people a community that they can feel like they belong in, that they can feel like they're part of. That's what we're trying to offer people. Um, and, uh, if you want to be a part of that, you're welcome. Uh, you know, Center for Political Innovation will soon be opening the membership, formally opening the membership so that you can... You can become an official member of the CPI. That's on the on the brink of happening. Um, John Brown volunteers are heading to Texas pretty soon. First, they're heading to Nicaragua, some of them with me, and then they're heading to Texas. Um, I, there's talk of a, a global day of action for Alex Saab. I don't want to say too much more of that until it's finalized, but a lot of important things are happening, right? Look at the supply chain coming up, right? The supply chain, right? Yeah, you know, they're saying it's bad in stores. You can't get this product you need. You can't get that product you need. Well, wait, uh, wait until the holiday seasons. Wait until Black Friday. Um, wait until Black Friday comes along. Uh, wait until uh, Christmas time and people can't get what they want, right? We were panicking. We were panicking decades ago, 10, 20 years ago. We were panicking, panicking because we couldn't find Tickle Me Elmo. Well, wait until we can't find a Christmas turkey. Wait until we can't find a Christmas ham. Wait until there's a shortage of liquor uh, during the holiday seasons. People like to drink their liquor in the holiday seasons. Wait until there's a shortage of liquor during the holiday seasons. Folks, this is not going to be, this is going to be a wild, wild Christmas time, folks. And we're going to get a real wake-up call about what capitalism is all about. This is going to be a wild holiday season, folks. I am just warning you, I hate to be the bearer of bad news but this is going to be a wild, wild Christmas. Uh, this is going to be a wild winter break. This is going to be a wild winter solstice. Um, whatever holiday you celebrate, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, New Year's, um, winter solstice, uh, uh, Yuletide, uh, this is going to be a wild year, folks. It's going to be a wild year. Last year, we weren't supposed to go visit our family. We were supposed to stay isolated at home. 
this year we might be able to go see our family, but there won't be any food to eat. So I'm just warning you. I'm just warning you folks. Uh, you know, there's there's some rough times ahead, but what do I always tell myself? This is what you should tell yourself too when we face these rough times. You should tell yourself, you should take a deep breath and tell yourself, tell yourself how lucky you are because we are living in the last days of capitalism. These are the last days of American imperialism. Radicals in the 1930s are jealous of us. The radicals in the 1960s and 70s are jealous of us because we are going to see the end. We are going to see the end. Elaborate on shortages. We are going to see the end of the capitalist system. We're going to see the end of it. Right? Capitalism in our time will come to an end. We are going to see the rise of a socialist world. And uh, humanity is going to march forward. We will see the very end. We will not see reforms to save capitalism. We are going to see American capitalism meet its doom. It won't meet its match. It will meet its maker. Right? And uh, we should be thankful. We should be deeply thankful that we are living in these tough times. But it's always darkest before dawn. It's always darkest before dawn. It's always, always gets worse before it gets better. But it is with our determined spirit of resistance uh, that things will improve. You know, one story that I've heard about China. One story I've heard about China. Uh, oh, Grapes of Wrath, right? <sighs> Grapes of Wrath. That's a good book. Grapes of Wrath. That's a good super chat. Grapes of Wrath. All right. Why not working class movement? One story I heard about China was that there was a woman who was a Roman Catholic. And at the time of the communist revolution, uh, you know, she was hostile to the Chinese Communist Party. She was hostile to them because of the fact that she was a Roman Catholic. And they were godless communists. Um, and then the Chinese Revolution happened, and you know they, they sent literacy volunteers all over China to teach low-income folks how to read. And they started the Barefoot Doctors Program. They got medical aid to people. She kept praying. She kept going to the Catholic Church and praying. She kept resisting the Communist Party. Kept opposing the Communist Party. And then, you know, they built storm levees so that people didn't die from flooding. And then they mechanized agriculture. They brought in the iron oxen. And people in the Chinese countryside finally had tractors to plow their goods with. And then, you know, women got the right to divorce and the right to vote and the right to participate in the political process. And uh, finally, this woman who'd been going to pray throughout all of this, uh, she watched the country being transformed. She watched all these amazing things happening. She finally, she changed her mind about the Communist Party. And she said, you know, they might be, they might be godless communists, but all these years I've been going to the church and praying for stuff. But now I look at what the communists are doing and everything I've been praying for all these years is happening. And they're doing it. Uh, 
and it looks like God is working through them. And maybe instead of condemning them as godless communists, I ought to recognize that maybe they don't realize it, but God is on their side. Um, and that is that. That's how a lot of people throughout the history of, of communism have come to become sympathetic uh, with, with socialism, right? And and it's a hard pill for people to swallow. But you know, when people take control of the means of production, and when you have a revolution, when you have a government uh, that fights for working people, um, big changes can happen. And uh, people may be hostile. They may do everything they can to resist it. Uh, but it'll happen. When I was in Venezuela, I'll tell you this, and then I'll we'll we'll. We'll move on from, from that and we'll get to the second half of the show. But when I was in Venezuela, um, I met, uh, I went into central Caracas and there's a commune, a colectivo, a colectivo uh, that, uh, that I went to. And uh, there was a woman there with 18 years old. She wore army pants, khakis, military pants, strong, strong woman. And she had been an orphan. She had been a homeless child in Caracas, who didn't speak English. She spoke only the indigenous language. Her family had been kicked off their land. They'd come and she'd been a homeless child in central Caracas. Um, she'd been adopted and you know taken into this colectivo, adopted. And uh, she was there and we were interviewing her about what it was like in the, in the commune. She said, Chavez, Hugo Chavez raised me. We watched him on TV every time he did Allo Presidente. Um, every time we did Allo Presidente, uh, he was on there and, uh, he raised us. Uh, we were brought, um, thank you, David. Have a good meeting. Have a good meeting, David. And, uh, we were brought up on Chavez and she said, I'm a religious person. She said, I believe that I was brought to this earth to die for Hugo Chavez, to die for the revolution. That is the purpose that I have in this life. I'm not alone. There are thousands of young Venezuelans who will die for Hugo Chavez. They will not come back. The imperialists will not come back into the country. That's a slogan we use, but it's not just a t-shirt. They're not coming back to Venezuela. And that's why the Venezuelan government is still in power. I mean, they've thrown everything at Venezuela. They've made it hard for them to get food, right? They barricaded the country. Uh, they drove the oil prices down. Uh, they've been burning food warehouses. They, I mean, they've assassinated John Pilger, right? They've they've assassinated, uh, you know, leaders of the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, some people even think Hugo Chavez may have been assassinated, um, you know. Uh, and uh, but yet here they are. They keep coming, right? And that's because that's because there are millions of people who believe in what they're doing, who are ready to give their lives for it, ready to ready to be part of a bigger project of something that's bigger than themselves, ready to fight for socialism. And uh, that's why they're still in power. Any other country, you have to imagine, if the United States faced half of what Venezuela was facing, we would have already overthrown the government. There'd be blood running in the streets. But Venezuela, they've resisted coups. They've resisted destabilization. They can't bring the government of Venezuela down. And the U.S. imperialists are coming to terms with it. They just can't bring the government of Venezuela down. They can't do it. They can't do it. And why can't they do it? Because there are people like that woman we met. There are people like that woman we met who are just not going to let it fall. They remember what life was like before Hugo Chavez. They know what they're fighting for. They know who's responsible for the problems they're having right now. And they're not going to surrender. And that is, that's the same with China. You know, that is the same with China, same with Cuba. All these countries are going to reform. They're going to update their socialist system, but they're going to fight for it. 
And that's what you need to remember. Um, and we need to build that kind of core here in this country. We need working people that are hungry, that are suffering to not blame immigrants for it, not blame African-Americans, not blame China for it. We need them to blame the ruling class. We need to build that kind of core, that solid core of revolutionary dedicated people. That's what we need to build over here. Not an organization of, of people who just get on the internet and hate the world. Not a bitter, bitter, doomer-pilled internet, internet hate fest of people who sit on there and spell America with three Ks and have a tantrum. We need to build a solid core, a community, a community of solidarity, of dedicated people who love socialism, love Marxism, and are committed, are committed are committed to building it here in this country and dismantling imperialism and bringing the working class of the United States into solidarity uh, with the people of the world, dismantling imperialism and fighting for a government of action that fights for working families. We need to build that solid core. When I went to Iran and I saw the Supreme Leader speak in that auditorium full of people, those were working class Iranians who didn't have running water before the Islamic Revolution, didn't have telephones before the Islamic Revolution. When that supreme leader of Iran walked in and held his hand out, he can't move one of his arms because of the bombing. It was a bombing. He lost the ability. One of his arms is paralyzed. When he held his arm, hand out, and that auditorium went wild, and those people were crying and screaming for the supreme leader of Iran, they were screaming for him because he had improved their lives. And that in Iran, they've got that Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And those people, they believe in the Islamic Revolution. And they believe in the Ayatollah. And they believe in not capitalism, but Islam. And they are ready to throw their lives down for it. And that's why the imperialists can't get their fingers back into Iran, right? We need to build the American version of that. It's not going to look like Venezuela. It's not going to look like Iran. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we got to build that kind of solid core, that kind of unstoppable solid core of people that are committed to this, people who believe in this, people who are connected to a higher power, to something bigger than themselves, people who aren't caught up in their Instagram and their Facebook, people who aren't addicted to porno, people who aren't you know drunk all the time or high on marijuana, but people who are ready to give their life to this, people that people that are, are ready to connect to something, they're ready to be part of a community. That's what we need to build. That's the only way we're gonna get out of this. That's the only way we're gonna get out of this is we can build this community. And I don't know what this community is gonna look like. It's not gonna look like the Soviet Union. It's not gonna look like Iran. It's not gonna look like Venezuela. It's not gonna look like Cuba. It's gonna be a uniquely American formation. It's gonna be something specific to this country. It's gonna look like something the world has never seen. It's gonna be something that wouldn't work in any other country. It would work here right? Just like what's working over there is not going to work over here, right? We need to find the formula to build that kind of fighting force, that solid core of people that are dedicated to this project, dedicated to building a new America for working families, dedicated to resisting the imperialists. If we can build that kind of solid core, a movement of people that are ready ready to believe in this, ready to sacrifice for this, ready, ready to take losses, ready to, ready to give up ready to give up the easy way, but stand arm in arm, ready to be part of a big project. We can build that. We can build that. We can, we can wipe, out, wipe out homelessness in the United States. We can wipe out opioid addiction. We can, we, can, we can industrialize the United States. We can reindustrialize it. We can build high-speed railway from one end of this country to the other. You know, we can, we can build Fusion City. We can, we can abolish fossil fuels, get beyond climate change. 
right? We can we could have a one-day work week very easily in the United States of America, I think, with a socialist system, right? We could, we could, we could completely abolish, uh, abolish lack of health care. We could have health care as a human right. We could have full employment, guaranteed employment for all at decent wages. Uh, you know, we could make sure that every child is brought up in a society that doesn't see them as a as a burden or as a useless problem, but rather as full of potential. We could turn every human being into a highly productive, uh, productive asset to build a socialist society. Why was you? You know, we could. We could do that. We could very easily do that with a socialist system, but it requires a core of dedicated people. It requires a, a solid core of very, very dedicated people who believe in this, who are willing to make sacrifices for it. That is what is required. Um, and if we're not wrangling with how we can build a solid core of people that are committed to overcoming capitalism in America, we're not doing our job. Right? We can talk about, okay, you know, we want to do this, we want to do that. Oh, I'm in the, I'm in the Communist Party. Oh, well, I'm in the Revolutionary Communist Party. Well, I'm in the Re Socialist Workers Party. Well, oh, I'm in the International Socialist Organization. Yeah, well, I'm in the Communist Party USA Marxist Leninist. Well, I'm in the Marxist Leninist Refoundation Committee of the United States Workers International. Yeah, well, I'm in the Fifth Internationalist Club. You're a Trotskyite. You're a Stalinist. You're a Maoist. You're a Hosist. You're an anarcho-communist. You're an anarcho-authoritarian syndicalist. You're a crypto-fascist. You're a red-brown. Oh, my God. I'm a third world. We got to get over that. We got to be serious. We got to be serious, folks. You've got to be serious. We got to get over the silliness. Got to get over the LARPing. We got to build a real-life IRL community of people. Community of people who are willing to make sacrifices, willing to try new things. Willing, willing to trust other people, willing to take risks and willing to give love, to give love out of their heart. And love is dangerous. Love is a very dangerous feeling. When you truly love somebody, you're making yourself vulnerable. When you truly love somebody, you are making yourself vulnerable because that gives them the ability to hurt you. And it's hard. It's very, very hard, right? I'm really glad to hear that, Chase. I'm really, really glad. It's really, really hard to open your heart to other people. It's really hard because doing so, it doesn't just enable you to, to get satisfaction out of them. It enables, it makes you vulnerable. It makes you vulnerable. But we have to build a community where people can love, where people can learn to love, where people can feel like they can open their hearts and make themselves vulnerable, where people can get connected to, the, to other people, get connected to a higher power, get connected to a cause, get connected to the struggle to take up history's challenge. We got to figure it out. We got to figure it out. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be difficult at times. There's going to be rough days. There's going to be sacrifices. There's going to be people who get hurt along the way. We don't want that. You know, we want, we want it to be a walk in the park. We want it to be easy. We want it to be swimming, swimming downstream, but sometimes we're going to have to swim against the current. We're going to have to swim against the current sometimes, right? Folks, enjoy Biden while he lasts. It's much easier now to be a communist than it's going to be in a little bit. I have a feeling this, these are great. This is These are times full of great opportunities. People are interested in communism. Trump is down for the count. 
Biden is up there going, hey, man, can we build some infrastructure? Right? We got to take advantage of this moment because it's going to get harder. It's going to get a lot harder soon. I, I can guarantee you that. Right now, things are open still, but liberalism will collapse in, in on itself eventually. We're going to we're going to have illiberalism pretty soon. Right? Right now we have a, you know, we we have a weird situation where things are getting worse, but there's still an openness, right? And I pretty soon, pretty soon as the instability continues, they're going to they're going to they're going to shut down this openness. Uh so if we don't seize this moment, if we don't take advantage of this moment and make the most of it, um, we will be doing ourselves a great disservice because what we're getting away with now in terms of meeting people, in terms of spreading our message, in terms of in terms of recruiting people, in terms of building communities and organizations and networks, we may not be able to do in times come. It could get a lot harder really quickly. So we have got to take advantage of this this tone, this moment, right? I, I said I gave five years. I mean, that was about a year ago. So we got four years, right? We got four years, four years, folks. Got to take advantage of this moment. We got to we got to seize the time. That's what we got to do. So there you go. On that note, folks, names and locations, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you, and then I will start answering your super chat questions. So names and locations, names and locations. Dylan in California, Finn in Duluth, Stephen in Riverside, Arturo in Anchorage, Chaya in Montreal, Craig in Fort Lauderdale, Tulare, Sam in Missouri, Micah in Las Vegas, Duluth, right? Belize, Joey, Troy, New York, California, Clydebank, Enoch, Australia, Suffolk County, Florida, Ontario, Canada, Kendall in San Diego, Kieran from San Diego, Seattle, Los Angeles, Jenny Lynn, Io Hillary in New York, shout out to you, Elias in Wisconsin, New Zealand, Mindanao to Midwest, Olympia Logic, Tony in Tasmania, Austin, Texas, ATX, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, China, Indonesia, Kinky in Southern California, shout out to you, Kinky, Australia, Matey, Katie in Cincinnati, Pomona, California, West Virginia, Allen in Chicago, Winston in St. Louis, Chris in Korea, Richie in Staten Island. Shout out to you, Richie. I hope all's going well with you. Cardoba, Tom Frost, Dario from Brooklyn. Shout out to you, Dario. South Carolina, Scotty, Bermuda, David, Detroit, Michigan, Sydney, Australia, Martin in Ireland, um, John McCarthy in Chicago, North Carolina, Maryland, uh, the Theocracy of Utah, Texas, Pittsburgh, Iceland, Zach in Seattle, OP Florida, Gabby in Chicago, shout out to you, Gabby, Isaiah in Dallas, shout out to you, Isaiah. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. Isabel in Toronto, shout out to you, Isabel in Toronto. Anybody else with us tonight? Names and locations, names and locations. I will call you out if there's anybody else, and then we'll start start hitting the super chats. Bayonne, New Jersey. Shout out to you, Red Illuminati. He's got a great YouTube channel, by the way. Great commentary, great stuff. Red Illuminati, check him out. Check him out, right? Um, anybody else? Norway. Braj is in Norway. It's either my way or Norway. Uh there you go. Anybody else? Names and locations. Springfield, Missouri. Camel spider attack. 
Springfield, Missouri. That is quite a name you got there. Camel Spider Attack. Neil Frazier is with us. Shout out to you. Steve in Seattle. All right, folks. Now uh, is the time when I start answering Super Chat questions. If you have another Super Chat question, I will answer it. Um, we got a few here for me to get through, but that's all right. What makes someone a fanatic? Well, a fanatic is someone who is very, very excited about a particular topic or task. Um, and they go over the top into it, right? So everyone's kind of mildly interested in politics for the most part, but then people that are political fanatics get really into it. Some people are very interested in bowling, but then professional bowlers are fanatical bowlers, people that are professional full-time bowlers. Excuse me. <sighs> they are fanatical bowlers, right? Um, that Fanaticism is, a, is an emotion more than anything. When you get a thrill out of something, that's what I would argue is a fanatic. All right. Communists who aren't supporting the strike wave. Oh boy, right? That's that's a manifestation of ultra leftism. I mean, the argument is, oh, these workers aren't communists. Oh, they're just trying to get a bigger share of imperialism. And when there's workers out on strike, they're up against the same corporations that are looting the developing world, right? Kellogg's, that's an agribusiness conglomerate. Uh, that is, it is, you know, hurt the developing world. You know, you know, people of Mexico, they've got screwed by American agribusiness. The people of Haiti have gotten screwed. You know, they're up against Kellogg's. They're up against this, this agribusiness monopoly that has devastated people against the third world, right? Just like the farmers of Haiti got destroyed by Kellogg's, just like the farmers of Mexico got destroyed by Kellogg's, just like, you know, so many people have had American agribusiness and, you know, you know, agricultural monopolies, you know, put their farming sector out of business. They have to import food from the United States. Now uh, we've got workers in the United States that are facing an attack from Kellogg. It's coming after their health care, coming after their pensions, doesn't want to give them a decent raise and amid this inflation. So, uh, you know, if that's the case, shouldn't, shouldn't we try to build a link you know, I mean, they just don't get it, right? And this is ultra-leftism, classic ultra-leftism. Maybe it's done in the excuse of third-worldism. Maybe it's done in the excuse that these workers aren't revolutionary enough. They don't have a communist union. This is a deviation, right? You know, the, the class struggle on the picket line. That's where these things happen. That's where these things happen, right? And whether it's John Deere, whether it's the nurses, right? You got to support your brothers on the picket line, right? There might be Republicans, might be Democrats, might be Muslims, might be Christians, might be might be Jews, might be might be evangelicals, might be atheists. It doesn't matter. They're your brothers on the picket line. If you don't support the workers on the picket line, look, uh, you know, I've made reference many times to the fact that in West Virginia, when the teachers went on strike 2017, the Workers World Party was dominated by third worldists who didn't support the strike, didn't support the strike. And they declared, they said that the teachers should pay reparations to the third world rather than Rather than go on strike, one settler, one bullet, that's awful. That is reprehensible. That is betrayal, right? If you're not fighting for working families, what are you doing? What are you doing? Next question. All right. 1948 to 1960 for U.S. Communist parties. I don't know why this person is so interested in this particular time period, but I can quickly go over the key events. 1948 was the year of the Smith Act trials. That was the year that the National Board of the Communist Party was sent to federal prison. Uh, they were put on trial at the famous Foley Square trial. Uh, William Z. Foster, Gus Hall, um, you know, uh, Eugene Dennis. Um, wow, who else? Uh, Benjamin Davis, uh, you know, Jack Stachel. 
the National Board of the Communist Party were tried for the crime of trying to advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government or teaching an ideology that might bring one to that conclusion. Furthermore, um, that was the year that Henry Wallace ran for president. Uh, the Democratic Party was divided, um, you know, and they were trying to get rid of all of the uh, all of the progressive, like Roosevelt-style Democrats. So Henry Wallace, who'd been vice president during World War II, split the Democratic ticket, ran against the Democratic uh, against Truman in the primary, or not in the primary, but in the national election on the Progressive Party ticket. Very progressive anti-war campaign. Um, those were the McCarthy years, right? 48, 49. Those were the intense years of McCarthyism. You had the Korean War that broke out, uh, the Korean War. Uh, and there was only one demonstration against the Korean War. And I've heard the reports of that demonstration from someone who was there. There was an older woman who had been there when she was very young and she had had, you know, there had been a gathering in Times Square and all these people had gathered wearing their suits. And then someone said the code word. And then they unfurled a banner that said, you know, Young Communist League, U.S. off the Korean Peninsula. And immediately the cops came and started clubbing them. So they broke apart. And then they went down Broadway, gathered in gathered in Madison Square, 34th Street. Again, just stood there until someone said the code word. Then they unfurled the banner. And immediately the cops started clubbing them. Then they went further down. They went down to Union Square. And they went down and they they did it all throughout Manhattan, and got beaten up and arrested. The USA was a full-on police state during the Korean War. You couldn't be a communist. Communists were jailed and locked up in many different states. They were indicted and charged, but they still protested. And then the very famous writer Howard Fast tells the story of how he rented a hotel room facing Times Square. And he got big speakers and he blasted anti-war messages out into Times Square from his hotel room, locked the door to the hotel room and blasted anti-war messages until the police came and broke the door down. Um, you know, that was the kind of thing. Protesting the Korean War was not a thing one could do. There were protests against the Vietnam War, but protesting the Korean War was very difficult. People did it. People did it. Um, what else happened? Uh, that was... You know, that was that was the period where because of McCarthyism, the Trotskyites, uh, the Trotskyites were tested. Right. The Trotskyites had always maintained that they were so much more revolutionary than the Communist Party. Oh, the Communist Party, they want a popular front, but we want permanent revolution. We're the real revolutionaries. Communist Party, a bunch of sellouts. They support Roosevelt. They support the Democrats. They support Stalin and the Soviet Union. We're the super ultra-revolutionary New York City intellectuals. We're the Trotskyites. But then McCarthyism happened. McCarthyism happened. Um, you know, uh, right? Right. Writing it down. McCarthyism happened. And when McCarthyism happened, the question was, if you were so much more revolutionary than the Communist Party, these Trotskyites should have been way more, way more targeted by the government. The government should have gone after them 10 times as hard because they were so much more revolutionary. Plus, they should have been really militant in their defense of the Communist Party. They should have been on the barricades defending the Communist Party from the witch hunts, fighting, fighting for the rights of, of the Communist Party, fighting against against what was happening, right? Henry Winston, an African-American leader of the Communist Party, went blind in prison. They took his eyesight from him by not feeding him properly and keeping him in conditions where he didn't have proper eyesight. It's horrendous. The man went blind because of what the, what the imperialists did. 
And, uh, you know, you, if the Trotskyites were truly more revolutionary than the communists, they would have been stepping up to fight McCarthyism. But they didn't. They didn't. The Trotskyites supported McCarthyism. When the 1948 Smith Act trial, you can go read James Cannon's speech that he gave, this disgusting speech by James Cannon, the leader of the Socialist Workers Party, when he said that the Communist Party deserved everything that had been done to them, but it was just the wrong court and the wrong charges. That's despicable, right? And the Trotskyites, when World War, when, when the Korean War happened, they called it a war of Stalinist expansionism. And the Trotskyites, who were always claiming they were so much more revolutionary than the Communist Party, so much more revolutionary than the Communist Party, exposed themselves as anti-communist class collaborationists. Go read James Cannon's speech, 1948, on the the prosecution of the Communist Party. You can find it. It's on his Marxist Internet Archive, I believe. Um, It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The Trotskyites, they, they supported the witch hunts. They supported driving the Communist Party out of the Union. Thank you, Lumpia. They, 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 out of the unions. They, they were reprehensible, the communist, they, the, the socialist workers. But the Trotskyites exposed themselves in 1948. Um, and um, they, they went along with it. And it was, it was absolutely horrendous. Now, there was one faction of Trotskyites who didn't. And they were called the Marcyites. They were followers of Sam Marcy, right? And they are, that's the Workers' World Party. They come out of that tradition. They were one section of Trotskyites who kind of you know, kind of realized that McCarthyism was bad, didn't, you know, realize that, you know, that quote unquote, they called, talked about vulgar anti-Stalinism and they became their own thing. That's the Workers' World Party. But for the most part, the Trotskyites, McCarthyism tested them and it revealed them to be not so good. Um, now, uh, 1956, you had the secret speech, right, of Khrushchev, the Khrushchev secret speech, where Khrushchev accused Stalin of being really bad, just like the imperialists had said, Communist Party had a national meeting and they announced that in light of the Khrushchev secret speech, they were going to have de-Stalinization. They published a pamphlet called Communists Take a New Look by Eugene Dennis, where the Communist Party basically announced they were considering dropping Marxism-Leninism and becoming a mass party of socialism. Uh, They had the 1957 convention of the Communist Party Uh, in which they dropped support for the Black Belt and the separation of the Black Belt and announced they didn't support Black nationalism. But they also maintained Marxism-Leninism as their their political line. They they refused to become a mass party of socialism. John Gates led a split from the Communist Party that was anti-communist and became social democrats, joined the Socialist Party. And uh, the William Z. Foster faction most of them were kicked out and became Maoists. Uh, they were part of the Provisional Organizing Committee for a New Communist Party. Uh, the Puerto Rican folks, uh, the folks who still believed in the Black Belt, Harry Haywood, Nelson Peary, others, they were kicked out you know, as well. And the Eugene Dennis and Gus Hall faction, uh, also Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, they became the leadership of the Communist Party with the Fosterites uh, weakened and mostly expelled. Foster was not expelled, but a lot of them were. And the John Gates revisionist faction, anti-Soviet faction kicked out. The Communist Party was significantly weakened in 1956. Also around that time, 1956, the Trotskyites were talking about regroupment. And some of the Trotskyites wanted to merge with the Socialist Party and form a whole new party. 
that would be just kind of a collection of anti-Soviet communists. Um, and that was that was the idea. And there was a big debate within the Trotskyites about regroupment. Uh, it was called regroupment. Um, uh, there were a number of, uh, there were some people that were kicked out of the Communist Party in 56 and 57. Uh, they formed something called the Provisional Organizing Committee for a New Communist Party. There was also something called Hammer and Steel that was formed. And that was a group of, that was a couple people that were kicked out of the Communist Party. They started a newsletter called Hammer and Steel. And they were, you know, they were like, eventually became Maoists, but they were early, you know, anti-revisionists. So that was 56, um, you know. Uh, you have to remember that, you know, McCarthyism after the death of Stalin and after the execution of the Rosenbergs, McCarthyism started to break, right? You know, 54, 1954 was the year that uh, you had the lynching of Emmett Till. Uh, Emmett Till was an African-American young man, uh, 14 years old, was accused of whistling at a white woman. He was brutally murdered. And then the killers were acquitted in a, in a kangaroo court. They basically, the, the murderers faced no, no charges for what they did. The Soviet Union took the image of the mutilated body of, of Emmett Till and, you know, sent it all over the world, exposing the crimes of U.S. imperialism. And you had the very beginnings of the civil rights movement. And eventually, you had later that year, the Montgomery bus boycott. And that was the beginning of McCarthyism breaking. Suddenly, you had people protesting again, protesting around an issue, civil rights, that the commun only the communists had touched that issue of African-American rights. Uh, and suddenly, you had McCarthyism starting to break. Um, so things were starting to change, uh, but there was still a pretty bad atmosphere in the country. Um, you know, it was still a pretty right wing atmosphere, um, you know, and and then there started there was, you know, there were questions. Right. And so then as you know, as we moved into the Eisenhower presidency, Dwight Eisenhower was a Republican, but he'd started, you know, because he was a Republican, he'd been a Democrat. He would have been on the defensive but because he was a Republican. He started doing some things that were, you know, indicating he wanted to negotiate with the Soviets. Uh, he wanted to negotiate with the, the Soviet Union a little bit, and he, you know, he he kind of moved against McCarthyism. So Dwight Eisenhower kind of shifted, uh, you know, shifted, you know, the Republican Party away from the full-on McCarthyism, and things were starting to break. Um, you know, now 19, you start to have the beginnings of the Sino-Soviet split, right? 1960, 1961 is when China and the Soviet Union ultimately, you know, cut ties, right? Um, the first pamphlet that China published uh, criticizing the Soviet Union was called The Difference Between Comrade Togliatti and Us. And it was the Chinese Communist Party attacking the leader of the Italian Communist Party, Togliatti. Uh, Palmiro Togliatti was the leader of the Italian Communist Party. And he was saying things that were not, you know, he was saying basically that, that you know, that because it was a threat uh, to world peace, because there was a danger of nuclear war, that the Soviet Union should not, um, you know, that the, the, the countries in the developing world should not take up uh, arms against imperialism. And uh, Palmiro Togliatti became a target. The Chinese Communist Party published a pamphlet condemning Palmiro Togliatti. That was the beginning of, of the Sino-Soviet split. The difference between Comrade Togliatti and us. That was the beginning of it. Uh, after that, um, you know, you had long-lived Leninism uh, published by the Chinese Communist Party. You had critique of the general line of the international communist movement, uh, where the, the Chinese Communist Party was calling for the Soviet Union to wage a campaign against revisionism, uh, which they refused to do. And ultimately, then, you have, you know, the Soviet Union cutting off its aid to China, uh, an end of diplomatic relations between China and the Soviet Union. And, yeah. And that was uh, that was the beginning of the Sino-Soviet split, and that was a big deal. 
Um, you know, I posted a clip of the leader of the Communist Party of Canada and in about 1960, and they asked him the difference between the Soviet Union and China. And he says, well, the position of the Communist Party of Canada and of most communist parties in the world is that peace should be the priority. However, the position of the Chinese is that if we need a little war here or a little war there to stop the imperialists, why, that's okay. Um, and that, yes, the Chinese were still calling for global revolution against imperialism, and the Soviet Union was emphasizing detente and peaceful coexistence. Um, so there you go. Um, you know, um, kind of uh, are communists like Puritans or Quakers. All right. Um, All right. So there you go. There you go. I guess that's that's what I wanted to say on that. Um, so, um, you know, I guess that's that was the atmosphere. That's that's the United States. You had the very, you know, the very beginnings. I think in 1961, you got the founding of the progressive labor movement, progressive labor, which became a big Maoist party. Caleb, thank you for all your efforts. I was curious what are your thoughts on the changing nature of the USA's transatlantic relationship, NATO. All right. We can talk about that. NATO changing. Right. All right. So there you go. And uh, so, yeah, that, I think that answers that question. China's real estate problems. Well, look, um, China's real estate problems, uh, you know, I mean, look, China controls the means of production. You know, it's not the chaos of the market. The state steps in and controls that. Right. You know, the market is not going to run rampant. Um, yes, there's problems because because at the end of the day, right, you know, you know, real estate speculation is not good. President Xi Jinping has said on many occasions that housing is for living in, not for speculation. And they need to control these capitalist entities. Right. They, they are not loyal to China, that are not loyal to the Chinese Communist Party's project. And they're going to have to transition to having more state control in that particular area. And it, this is an example of why. And it's going to be difficult, but they always come through. Look, China's economy has been about to collapse my entire life. Finally, China's about to collapse and it doesn't happen. They've been about to collapse. Oh, they're about to collapse. China's going to collapse. Mm, no, hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. Why? Because profits are not in command. The irrationality of the market is not in command of the Chinese economy. All right, next question. Uh, new sanctions on Nicaragua. They are determined to crush the Nicaraguan revolution because they've done so much to eradicate poverty, to wipe out illiteracy, to launch a micro-entrepreneur program. Uh, there, there's hope that they could build a, a canal to counter the Panama Canal, an alternative canal that would not be under the domination of the U.S. imperialists. And that's it, it infuriates the imperialists. And that's why it's very important that I go to Nicaragua. And that's why the John Brown volunteers, some of them, Center for Political Innovation folks from the West Coast and, and other allies, that's why we're heading to Nicaragua. We're heading to Nicaragua uh, to stand in solidarity and, and to oversee those elections. We're going to Nicaragua. If you want to send us a donation to help us do it, just uh, shoot me a uh, shoot me a PayPal contribution, calebmoppin at gmail.com. It would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but we're going to Nicaragua. These sanctions are criminal. There are 29 countries that are subject to U.S. sanctions. And it is, it is, it is a crime. It's economic warfare. It is, and, you know, telling a country who they can and cannot trade with, unbelievable, unacceptable. Now they've kidnapped Alex Saab. I am against the NICA Act. I am against it. So there you go. Are the John Brown volunteers going to run for office? Well, they are well, I mean, they have the freedom to, but not as John Brown volunteers. We are not a political party. Uh, we do not endorse candidates. We do not campaign for anybody. We are an educational socialist project. We are not a political party 
not campaigning for anybody. We're we are we are an educational project. But if they they they're free to do it, I you know I mean I I would I I'm not going to tell them they can't. They're private citizens. They have their own autonomy. But we are not a party. Uh, we are a think tank that is engaging in socialist education. We are putting forward a program of reforms for the broad masses. We are educating the advanced about socialist ideology and Marxism. Um, but there you go. Um, third worldists conflate U.S. workers with the bourgeoisie. Yes, they take the concept of the aristocracy of labor, which is a Leninist concept, and they blow it up into something that it's not. They try to convince you the U.S. workers are the exploiters because they benefit to some degree from imperialism, which, yes, working people in the United States have a higher standard of living than working people in Somalia do. No question about it. Uh, that doesn't make them the exploiters. It means that that they get a bigger, you know, they get a bigger crumb, right? That they don't face the super exploitation that people in the developing world face. But at the same time, at the same time, they still don't get paid the full value of their labor, right? They don't get paid the full value of their labor. Um, and uh, and at the same time, the imperialists are demolishing the labor aristocracy, right? You know, they're driving down the living standards. So this is an opportunity to build solidarity. It's not the opportunity to denounce the workers. Now is an opportunity to to see as they drive down living standards, as they demolish the labor aristocracy, to build the solidarity in ways that were not possible in generations past. It was very difficult in the 70s and the 80s to build solidarity. White workers had it so much better than black workers. They didn't want it. But now things have changed. The country is more racially integrated and race is very important when you talk about labor aristocracy. White privilege and race, that's a very big part of it. Um, and on top of that, uh, living standards are dropping, uh, the good paying industrial jobs that were the base of the labor aristocracy have been eliminated. We're moving toward a service sector economy. And now there is more potential for solidarity between the U S working class and the working class of the third world to stand against the big multinational corporations. Now is not the time to be a third worldist. Right? I mean, it's not the time to be a third worldist. We need to get out of the movement and to the masses. We need to recruit the working people of the United States to anti-imperialism. And my biggest, I, I couldn't believe this. When I was watching Dust James debate a certain person who will not be named, he just kept saying, did it work? Did it work? Well, gee, you know, Bolshevism didn't work in Russia until 1917. Oh, wow. Did it work? Did it work? Maoism, Mao Zedong thought didn't work in, in, in China until, until 1949. I mean, it's like that is the dumbest argument because there's not been a socialist revolution. There can never be one, right? That's like, I mean, it's the most, it, they don't want to do any work. It's not easy. People people have died for this. People have gone to prison for this. You know that? People have, have lost everything for this. People have gone, I mean, Henry Winston lost his eyesight for this. All right, you think this is easy? You think this is easy? But that's what they think, right? You know, I mean, I was arguing with somebody on Twitter earlier today and they were just saying to me, oh, you know, U.S. workers support imperialism. You know, there wouldn't be so much support for imperialism among U.S. workers uh, if, they didn't, uh, if they didn't benefit from imperialism. I'm sorry. All over the developing world, there are right-wing working-class people who believe in anti-communist. I mean, it, it's just like they don't want to do any work. It's like, they, oh, there's not an immediate payout. There's not an immediate payout, so it can never be done, so I can just sit on my computer and be pessimistic. It's unbelievable to me. They just don't want to... I, I, they, they, they're just so antisocial. There's, so, I mean, I mean, it's beyond me. I mean, it's like, do they not, do they think, they think this is going to be easy. Oh, it's not easy. So it can't be done. I mean, I mean, they don't get it. 
I'm sorry. Do you think it was easy for the Bolsheviks? Do you think it was easy for Mao? Do you think it was easy for Fidel Castro? Do you think it was easy for the Bolivarians in Venezuela? It's This stuff isn't easy, folks. You know, if you're just going to go out there and like, oh, all right, well, everyone at my job is pro-imperialist. So therefore, I, I'm sorry. It's easier now than it ever was before. I'll tell you that much. It was far easier now than it was in the 90s. It's far easier now than it was in the 80s far easier now than it was even in the first decade of the 20th century. I'm sorry, folks. It's a lot easier now than it once was, but nobody said this was easy. Nobody claimed this was going to be a walk in the park. It's hard work building organizations. It's hard work. And, and I mean, when they sit there and go, oh, no, there, would, and that, there wouldn't be so much anti-communism in the U.S. if they didn't benefit from imperialism. Uh, go to Chile. Plenty of anti-communism there, right? Go to Go to South Africa, even. Plenty of anti-communism there. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, oh, oh, you know, I mean, it's just they they, they, they expect it's going to be easy. And on top of that, if you're really a third worldist, if you are really a third worldist, go to the third world, right? I, I don't buy that. If you're saying, oh, it's impossible here, okay, then go to the third world. Oh, but you don't want to do that, do you? You just want to sit on your computer. So I don't really think you really believe in third worldism. I think it's just a convenient way for you to isolate yourself from the masses. That's what you really want. And that's what it is, right? Okay, if you're a third worldist, fine, right? If 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 some people were really third worldist, okay, I will let you be a third worldist. If you get on the first plane to India, if you get on the first plane to Zimbabwe, you get on the first plane to South America and you go and become a full-time organizer there and you give your life to supporting the communists in the developing world, then I'll let you be a third worldist. But if you're not going to do that, I don't think, I, I, I don't believe you're really a third worldist. I think you're just lazy. I think you're just antisocial. If, if you're really a third worldist, get on a plane to the third world and go and do everything you can in the third world to support the struggle in the third world. And if you don't do that, I don't think you're really a third worldist. I think you're just a doomer. I just think you're an edgelord and I don't buy it, right? Any Anyone who's in the first world sitting there and going, there's no hope here is not really a third worldist. They are politicizing their own antisocial tendencies. That's all they're doing. If they're really a third worldist, you know, and they get on a plane and they go to the third world to support anti-imperialists in the third world, I, I believe you. I believe you. But if you don't do that, I don't really believe you. I think you're just politicizing, politicizing your own social alienation. And that's unacceptable to me. That is unacceptable to me. You are dere in dereliction of duty. Nobody said this was going to be easy. Nobody said this was going to be easy. I've been in parties that fucked me over and screwed me over. I've got, I've got people that are, you know, and I keep going. I keep going, folks. Right, I've got hate videos. They've they've smeared me that I'm a white supremacist and I'm a neo-Nazi and I'm a I'm a Dugan crypto. What am I? I'm what am I this week? I'm I, you know. But I keep going. I keep going. My face is all over the internet. There's nasty memes of me. I don't care. I keep going. You can keep going too. If you really believe, in, if you really really, if you, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, folks. It's not easy. It's hard. But we got we got we got to do it. Right, we got to do it, and uh, and I've been through it, right? And there, you can do it too. There's hardship in this world. Uh, it's not easy, right? And communists can be some of the most frustrating people to deal with. And you got to maneuver, and you got to do your own thing. Uh, but you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. All right. All right. Next question: uh, Putin's capitalism comments. Well, look, um, you know, I, I, Putin's not a communist. Uh, He's made very clear he's not a communist. Uh, he does not believe in Marxism. Uh, but Putin has spoken very highly of the Soviet Union. 
and he's praised good things about the Soviet Union. Putin is a, a complex political figure who does not fit into our Western political understanding, right? The media is making a big deal about his criticism on some of the cultural issues, um, but that criticism of capitalism, that was pretty on point, right? And in Russia, the economy is very, very state-controlled. The government runs Gazprom, the government runs Rosneft. There's a lot of government subsidization and planning of economy. Uh, you know, they're not into this free market insanity in Russia, right? Russia rescued itself from the chaos of the market in the 1990s by moving toward state control of various uh, various industries. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Putin is not a believer in free market capitalism. I'll tell you that. Not a communist, but not a believer in free market capitalism. All right. Uh, Putin has criticized the Bolsheviks' illiberalism. Well, I haven't seen those comments. I mean, I know he, Putin's not a Bolshevik, not a communist. So it doesn't surprise me, um, you know, and that also, you know, look, you can't, it is a little bit of an illusion. You can't have a whole country exact adopt exactly the same ideology. You know, that's that's it might have worked at one point in history. People were a lot more collective oriented, but nowadays there is this extreme individualism. And look, I mean, the problem with democratic centralism is, you know, if you join a democratic centralist party, they don't just want you to agree about, you know, their issues. They want you to agree with them about all of world history. They want you to have the exact same position as them on Hungary in 1956, on Czechoslovakia in 1968. And that's hard to do, right? And and that it's not totally realistic, uh, you know, that, you know, people do have differences of opinion. Um, and so, you know, I mean, if that's, if that, if that's what he meant, which I haven't seen the comments, I don't know what he meant, but that's what he meant. Whereas, you know, the, the democratic centralist model where the Soviet communist party was demanding, like you agree with them on every line, that's not realistic. Right. And if you want to have a modern communist party, you can't really do that. So there you go. Next question. The Pope slamming capitalism. Well, the Catholic church has always condemned capitalism, even before capitalism as it emerged, as capitalism was emerging, Catholic, Roman Catholic anti-capitalism predates, um, predates capitalism, um, and it predates leftism by a long time, right? Uh, the Catholic Church opposes Marxism also. They consider Marxism to be a godless ideology because it believes in materialism. They believe you can do the right thing despite your material circumstances. Humans are not slaves of, of the material reality that you can, you know, appeal to your moral, what you consider your greatest victory. Um, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can appeal, um, you know, you can overcome, you can overcome your, um, you know, your, your human desires and do the right thing. They reject uh, Marx's economic determinism and they have other criticisms of Marxism. But yeah, I mean, the Pope slamming capitalism, it's a matter of emphasis, right? During the Cold War, the Popes didn't do that kind of thing. So that would be seen as sympathetic to the communists. Um, at times when the USA and Western Europe were getting along splendidly, um, that's, I think that's pretty much what he meant. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, on times when Western Europe and the United States are a little farther apart, uh, the politics of the Pope shifts. And that's the Pope emphasizes the anti-capitalism stuff. So there you go. Um, elaborate on the shortages, supply chains, right? That, uh, that you know, there's been this slowed down demand and it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. And it's a mess. I mean, it's empty stores and it's a disaster. It is an utter disaster. It is an utter disaster, folks. Grapes of Wrath. Uh, the Grapes of Wrath is a great book. It's by John Steinbeck. He was sympathetic to the Communist Party at the time he wrote it. I think his wife was actually a Communist Party member. Um, John Steinbeck became like anti-communist in the 1950s, but he was sympathetic earlier. At that time in 1939, when he wrote that book, he was sympathetic. It's about the Great Depression, and it's every other chapter. The first chapter 
is about the Jode family. The next chapter is like a political, like an essay or kind of a fable that makes a political point. And the next chapter is about the Jode family again. It's about this family of Okies. They're in Oklahoma. They lose their farm and they travel to California to survive. Uh, it talks about the labor movement. Um, it talks about uh, it talks about the Great Depression. Uh, there's a great analogy in there. The guy's about to lose his farm or his, his home is going to get run over by a tractor. So he's standing out there with his rifle and he's going to shoot the guy on the tractor. The guy on the tractor says to him, don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. Um, I, I'm just a guy on a tractor. He says, okay, I'll go shoot the guy who sent you. He said, oh, well, then they'll just hire another guy. And he says, all right, well, I'll go shoot the bank. He said, well, you can't really shoot a bank. A bank is like an institution. The guy is standing there going, who do I shoot? Who do I shoot? Well, the point is you can't shoot a person. Right? There's no individual person who caused the depression. The problem is capitalism. There's one paragraph in The Grapes of Wrath where it compares I kid you not. It compares. It says when you realize that Washington, what is it? When, that Washington, uh, Washington, Lincoln, Marx, and Lenin were results, not causes. And it's basically talking about how uh, it compares uh, compares the American Revolution to the Marxists. Um, it's quite exciting stuff. Uh, it's a, and you know, it talks about how a red, a red. That's what they call communists. The Reds. A red is anyone who wants more than five cents an hour. A red is anyone who won't just roll over for the bosses. Right, the Reds are the heroes in the book. Right, they're the, the people organizing the farm workers. Once they get out to California, they're they're fighting for the farm workers. Uh, it's a great book. It's a great book. Full of it is a great work of social realism. Uh, the kind of art, the kind of art that the um, the synthetic left tried to destroy. There was a great article from I think it was one of the the journals of education. Um, you know, they published an article how the CIA flattened literature. And it's all about how the Iowa Writers Project, uh, which was, you know, which was a, an effort to, you know, fund and cultivate great writers in the United States, was funded by the CIA. Um, and the CIA started the Iowa Writers Project to cultivate fiction writers in the United States. And the CIA started it to fight social realism. They didn't want people to write The Grapes of Wrath anymore because that was communist, right? That was, you know, and so they 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 cultivated all this postmodern literature and stuff. A lot of, you know, and now we don't have, you know, we have pulp fiction like Harry Potter, but we don't have high good fiction anymore. Um, we don't have it anymore because the CIA kind of cultivated uh, academic English teachers and others to... Uh, to not like that kind of writing um, and cultivated them to like this kind of, it's just like they did with abstract art, right? And that that they were really threatened and they remained really threatened by what, uh, you know, what John Steinbeck did. You know, and the Soviet Union had great writing. I mean, Quiet Flows the Dawn, uh, you know, it's a, a Soviet novel that was just widely celebrated. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, they don't, they don't, we don't have writing like that anymore. At least it doesn't get published, right? They've cultivated all these English departments and all of that. Very funny folks. I'll tell you a story. I had a professor in college. Um, I took, you know, writing in college. Um, and you know, this guy, you know, he, he was qualified, right? It's not easy to get a job at a liberal arts college. Not easy to get a job being an English professor in liberal arts college. And, uh, you know, we read fiction and we wrote fiction in this class, um, you know, and uh, what I think is hilarious about it, but I just find to be really, really funny about the whole thing um, is that, uh, you know, this guy, you know, he was, he's got to be this college professor because he was, you know, such a great, you know, writer or something like that. I looked at his books the other day. More people have read my books than have read this guy's books by far. I have far bigger readership of my own writing than this guy has. 
There's guys teaching people to write for a living and all of that. And, and I remember we read in the English class, we read the short stories of a writer who he just thought was so good. But the reason he thought she was so good is because she'd given an, an endorsement to his novel. He'd written a novel and she'd given an endorsement to it. And I looked at it and I realized barely anyone's ever read this guy's novel. Um, but, uh, and, and I just thought about this and it's like, okay, this guy was supposed to be so amazing. And it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm a journalist. I, you know, I do my own thing and I'm, I'm writing books about Marxism and some more people are reading me than reading this guy. I just thought that was kind of, it was kind of gleeful pleasure. Maybe I'm a bit smug. Maybe I should have more respect for him. I don't write fiction, by the way. I don't, I don't read fiction. I don't write fiction. So maybe this guy was a good fiction writer. I just don't know good fiction when I see it, perhaps. I just find it hilarious that this guy who was just supposed to be so amazing, I realize no one reads his stuff, right? I mean, the other than pulp fiction, people read Harry Potter, people read romance novels, uh, you know, people read Fifty Shades of Grey. But other than that, there's people don't read, there's nothing like Grapes of Wrath nowadays. There's not high fiction, right? People don't, right? When it comes to fiction, people either read pulp or they don't read fiction, right? So there you go. I don't know that filmmaker. I just don't know anything about him. Sorry. Um wish I could answer your question. Um, why is there not a working class movement in the United States? Well, there is a working class movement. There's just a huge amount of political confusion, right? The, the left hates the working class. The synthetic left hates the working class, right? You know, they think it's class reductionism. It's racist and sexist, right? I mean, look at, I mean, the, the you know, the, the, the Medicare for All March was attacked by DSA. The DSA leadership went out of their way to attack the Medicare for All March because how dare you disrespect AOC and disrespect the squad. You know, the left hates the working class and the right, I mean, they don't believe in class struggle, right? And so, you know, that's why, right? I mean, the workers are ready to fight and they're going out in the street and they're on strike right now and they're protesting. The workers are ready to fight. The sentiments are there and there is people in the streets. People are doing it. There's Medicare for All. There's labor movements. There's people supporting Bernie Sanders is huge. There is a workers movement, but there is a, there is a misleadership, right? The synthetic left appointed leadership of the left, the, you know, job of the Vosh and Skippy the bear and the Michael Herring tonight, Gloria Steinem, CIA, DSA, Jacobin folks, they hate the working class. The very people they're supposed to lead, they hate, right? They're all woke and they think the working class are all a bunch of dumb racist bubbas. And, and that's the problem. It's a lack of leadership, Right. And that this is what Lenin points to in his book, What is to be done? Is that left to its own devices? You have to have a leadership with a correct political understanding. If not, it doesn't happen. Right. You need you need leadership to make it happen. And the leadership that has been provided is compromised and is problematic. Um, so that's up to us. We've got to do it. We've got to be the center for political innovation. Um, so there you go. Jackson Hinkle is amazing. Um, you know, Jimmy Dore, Jimmy Dore is stepping up to be a leader of the working class. He's a comedian for goodness sakes, but he's stepping up to be the leader of the, the working class because there's a void. People need leadership and there isn't anything. And so Jimmy Dore is stepping up and other people are stepping up. The Fred Hampton leftists, the convo couch, right? There's good stuff happening. Haas, he's great. He's doing good stuff. And there's a void that's been created because of the, the woke bread tube, you know, cult hates the working class. Well, we, those of us who are socialists who don't hate the working class. We've got a job to do. We've got a job to do. Best John Pilger movie, go see The Coming War on China. Great piece by John Pilger, a lot of information in it about Bikini Islands, about Deng Xiaoping and China. Uh, great stuff. That's that's great stuff. Go see The Coming War on China. Um, yeah, that's great stuff. Um, 
Why was the USSR depoliticized in the 80s? Uh, well, look, the Soviet Union did not have public debate. There was not public debate in the Soviet Union. All the law, all the votes were unanimous. All the disagreements were behind the scenes. Uh, everyone voted unanimously, right? And because there was not public debate, and because during the Stalin era, because of the purges and such, um, Frankfurt School, right? Um, because of the Stalin era, to blame. Because of that, um, you know, because in the Stalin era, it got, you know, it became understood that if you got too involved in politics, you might end up in a gulag. And because there, you know, I mean, a number of factors, the Soviet Union was under attack, it was never given a moment of peace. And as a result, it developed, you know, it it, it emerged in a way that that was that it was ultimately enabled it, it to be brought down, right? And that socialism, uh, you know, I mean, the Soviet Union achieved made amazing things in terms of defeating the Nazis, wiping out illiteracy, industrializing, raising people from poverty, but their political model had problems and they weren't able to adjust their socialism in a way that would save it, right? During the, you know, the Gorbachev years, they tried to adjust their socialism and it ended up destroying it. They weren't able to bend and so they broke. Okay. All right. Um, your grandfather claims that Truman saved South Korea. You run a great channel, Caleb. Well, thank you. Thank you, Finn. I do the best I can. I'm doing the best I can. Um, your grandfather claims that Truman saved South Korea. Well, no. Um, I, I think, you know, if you, I mean, how he put Park Chung-hee, the brutal military dictator, in power, right? And he armed and backed Park Chung-hee, who was a brutal military dictator who killed lots of people. I'm sorry, not Park Chung-hee, Sigmund Rhee. He armed and backed Sigmund Rhee. I'm not a member of supporter, but I want to point out that DSA endorsed Medicare for All March, much smarter than New York DSA. Well, I'm glad to hear that, John McCarthy. I know a lot of great people in DSA. DSA is not by any means of a uniform organization where everyone agrees. There's different perspectives in the group for sure. Um, uh, you know, Truman was backing the dictator Sigmund Rhee. And after the Korean War, you had the April Revolution, where the students in South Korea rose up against Sigmund Rhee. Um, and the industrialization, right, of, of South Korea happened later under Park Chung-hee. That happened like a decade after the Korean War. So Truman saving South Korea. No, Truman protected the military dictator, uh, the military dictator Sigmund Rhee, who then the Korean students overthrew. Uh, and then it was the Kennedy administration that brought in the military dictator Park, and it was Park who industrialized South Korea. So your grandfather doesn't know what he's talking about, right? He just hates North Korea, hates communism, and, you know, it's not that simple, right? Um, and, you know, and you have to remember, even up into the 80s, North Korea had a stronger economy than South Korea. So there you go. Because after the fall of the Soviet Union, the North Korea started having its, its big economic problems, right? North Korea was very strong economically until then. Are communists uh, descendants of the early settlers, Puritans and Quakers? No, right? Well, okay, there's some continuity there, right? For example, right? Um, I've noticed that particularly among Maoists, there are, there are some wasps, right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? That New England, um, that New England liberal spirit, right? It's there among communists. Uh, it's not, it's not as pronounced as it once was. Like if you go, you know, John Brown, right, religious fanatic from Ohio, but his parents were from New England, religious fanatic who gave his life to oppose slavery. That was a certain. There's a certain mindset that was in New England. Quakers. 
Puritans, people that, you know, they believed in God with all their faith and heart, and they were dedicated and full of passion. Um, and the followers of Henry George, uh, who was not a Marxist, but was like a progressive, you know, economist who advocated the nationalization and taxation of land values. And that there is like, there, you know, and you can go back to Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. There is this New England radical tradition, okay? The New England radical tradition is a big deal in American history. And you wouldn't know about it because it was usurped, right? Around the time of the 1920s, you had the influx of folks from Eastern Europe, you know, folks immigrating from Russia. And, and Marxism in the United States became dominated by another current, which was, you know, folks who came, a lot of Jewish folks who came, but, you know, also Czechoslovakians and Russians and Italians and, and other folks, Irish, who came over later, right? I mean, you know, William Z. Foster, his his parents came over much later, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, but but there was this layer in the United States, like a generation before, uh, who were, you know, people in New England who were full of religious passion and started moving out to the Midwest. And they were opposed to slavery, and they tended to be super religious and Protestant. Um, they tended to be either English or Irish in their ancestry, but they were Protestants, and they were fanatics. That's my ancestry, by the way. I'm descended from those people, right? I'm an Irish person, but there's, you know, there's Irish people who were urban, and they're Roman Catholic, and they're cops, and they're firemen, and they drink in the bars. That's not me at all, right? My family, both sides were Irish, but were Protestant Irish, uh, Scotch-Irish, Protestant. My, my mother's family, they don't even, they didn't even drink alcohol, right? And I believe one of my grandfather's when he was a kid, he wasn't allowed to play with uh, playing cards because they had faces on them. And that was, you know, a graven image. It was a violation of the Ten Commandments or whatever. That's who I'm descended from, right? And you see those folks among Maoists. For example, um, uh, you know, the, the big Maoist writer, uh, one of the most influential American Maoists uh, was the, the guy who wrote uh, Fan Shan. Right. Um, it's this book about um, about a Chinese village and how the communist uh, revolution impacted. It was a best selling book in the 60s. Fan Shen. Um, and uh, what was his name? It's his name is escaping me. Um, but he, he wrote Fan Shen. Right. Um, oh, William Hinton. William Hinton. And William Hinton is one of these. He's from New England. Uh, his parents founded the Putney School. Right. Which is in a prestigious uh, religious boarding school. It's like a high achieving, um, you know, high achieving boarding school, uh, you know, in New England, um, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, that was William Hinton. And, you know, it was Harvard and Yale and people like that. It's a lot of these people that are highly educated, but they have this religiousness about them and this passion, right? And they're, they, you know, they feel a lot of guilt, right? There's a lot of guilt and a lot of a lot of, you know, you know, struggling. Anna Louise Strong, one of my favorite writers, she's from this as well. Her father was a minister. She's from one of these families. And it's, you know, she writes about her whole life. She was struggling to be right in her soul. How can I be right in my soul? It's actually a biography of Anna Louise Strong, right in her soul. And Anna Louise Strong was a Maoist actually as well. She interviewed Mao. She ended up living in China. She died in China. Uh, she was a friend of Zhou Enlai. And then among the Maoists, you know, because Maoism has, Mao Zedong thought and the Cultural Revolution had this very moralistic edge to it. That kind of touched home with that current, right? And it's weird because later, you know, it was a lot of those urban folks, those Italian folks, those Jewish folks, those Irish folks who were urban, and they were, you know, they were organizing the labor movement. And they're, you know, they, they, 
they they were communists as well, right? And that was the Communist Party USA, and that was William Z. Foster, and that was Gus Hall, and that was, you know, that was Students for a Democratic Society later, but they had different, different values, right? They were anti-capitalist and all that, but they had a different perspective. It wasn't this moralistic um, anti-capitalism, most progressive of the Kennedy brothers. I don't even know. It wasn't this moralistic, uh, you know, it wasn't as moralistic and it wasn't as religious, right? These people might might have been atheists, but they were still religious in a way. Um, you know, and it, it, it had a different feel. It was much more like, you know, hey, we're street, you know, we're, we're fighting for ourselves. And, you know, it was much more like, uh, you know, kind of working class on the job. But there is this New England, New England radicalism, you can call it, which does come from Quakers and Puritans. Absolutely. Absolutely comes from Quakers and Puritans. Um, and, uh, you know, that current was a big impact on, on, that's a big current in the United States. And, and you can see a contrast and it's peak, like the height of it was before, before world war one, you had a lot of those folks, right? You had, um, you know, the socialist party of America had a lot of those people in it. And it was after world war one, you know, as you get in the 1920s and the thirties, it was that labor union, industrial, urban, Urban folks, Jews and Catholics, became the dominant uh, became the dominant ethnic current among among radicals, or at least radical white people in the United States. Right. Um, so it's interesting to think about, right? And, and some of these Communist Party people, some of the people that were big in the Communist Party, it's interesting because, like, if you dig a little deeper, they are from from this current. There were a lot of intellectuals who were sympathizers with the Communist Party that came from that old New England Puritan tradition. Uh, Corliss Lamont. I don't know if you've ever heard of Corliss Lamont. He was a very famous scholar, a writer who was a pro-Soviet voice. Uh, and he came out of Harvard and Yale and all of that. You can read Corliss Lamont. Uh, and his his nephew, Ned Lamont, was a big Democrat in Connecticut who ran for office in Connecticut and was like running against Joe Lieberman. And it's like, it's that current, that New England radical current it exists. Um, it exists. Uh, Lyndon LaRouche, interestingly, his parents were both Quaker, like fanatical Quakers who had their own sect that broke away from the American Friends Service Committee. Lyndon LaRouche comes out of that current. Um, Anna Louise Strong is from that current. John Brown is from that current. And that's important, right? It's a very important part of, of, of US, uh, U.S. radical politics that has been kind of overshadowed, right? The, the 1930s labor movement and then the, the, you know, the counterculture of the 60s kind of overshadows that. And that the values you get from those folks are a little bit different. It's much more moralistic. It's much more, um, you know, it's much more, quote unquote, puritanical, right? I mean, you know, Anna Louise Strong, right in her soul. She's wrangling. How could she be right in her soul? You know, John Brown is quoting, you know, I mean, it has a religious feel to it. Henry, the Henry Georgist movement, uh, you know, and there's old, you know, there's old cooperatives in New England, right? There are like communes that have been around for hundreds of years where they've just, you know, there's been like, you know, there's like, I forget where it is. It's like in Delaware, I think there's a commune where there's for generations, for five or six generations, these people have held all things in common and had, you know, had, had a, you know, a cooperative society and they don't make much noise about it. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like, and it's not very big. It's a few families, but they hold all things in common. Um, you know, um, you know, it, it's kind of amazing. Um, it's kind of amazing, uh, to think about, but, um, so yeah, new England radicalism is an important part, but then, you know, you have the urban radicalism that was, you know, a big deal that came in the twenties and thirties. Um, you have the counterculture then of the sixties. So it's, it's been, it, it's still there though. I would argue it's still there. I mean, look at me. I would never, I mean, 
those values that I got, and it's funny because my family is not at all radical, but they, you know, I told you who my great, great, or one of my ancestors way back was, was what is an important person in all of this. Um, Charles G. Finney, who was uh, the founder of Oberlin College and was uh, an abolitionist, a religious fanatic and an abolitionist. And that, you know, that's an impact, right? And that, and that it's weird. You wouldn't think that this kind of ethnic stuff would have an impact, but it really does the more you think about it. And, um, you know, I mean, and I could go on for this. I could go on about this. And I don't want anything, anything I'm saying here to be taken out of context, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, when you speak with generalizations, right? You know, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, what this group and their values versus this group. But yeah, I mean, you don't really know. At the end of the day, there's outliers, right? Among every one of these groups, right? So, but yeah, New England radicalism, you have the urban urban radicalism, you have, um, I don't know, it's all, it's all, and then, you know, there you go. All right. Um, uh, how is NATO changing? Well, Brexit was big, right? There's always been a rivalry between Britain and the United States versus the European mainland. And Brexit, you know, cemented that separation. Uh, it's related to nuclear power and the fact that it's American and British folks, you know, corporations that dominate the oil markets. Um, it's related to the fact uh, that uh, nuclear power is very popular in Germany and France, but it's very unpopular, uh, you know, among the British and the Americans and among the oil banking elite. Um, it's related to the fact that Russia is the neighbor of Germany and Belgium and a lot of these places. Uh, and they want to buy natural gas from them and that distance, right? I, I, it's been said many times, the greatest fear of the British is that the Germans and the Russians would become allies. That's the greatest fear the British have ever had because if that happened, they would lose control of the European mainland. That The British have struggled. They've struggled to control the European mainland to make sure that they are the top dogs of imperialism. If the Germans and the British, or if the Germans and the Russians ever got to be friends, that would spell the end of the British Empire. That would spell the end of the British Empire. Right. And it would spell it would spell the end of the British Empire. Right. That would mean that would mean Western Europe would join with Eurasia. And uh, that would mean the end of of Atlanticism. Right. The Atlanticist pathology, the Atlanticist domination of the world would be brought to an end. And that's the great fear. And that's why Hitler was brought to power to make sure that didn't happen. Right. There was it was if there had been a communist revolution in Germany during the 1930s, then Russia and Germany would have been together. And that would have been the end of, of Western capitalism it would have been the end of Atlanticism. Um, and that is their they, they fear that more than anything. Why do you think there's still troops in Germany? Right. East Germany has been gone for how long? Why are there still U.S. NATO, U.S. troops in Germany? Why? Well, it's to keep this from happening. Right. It's to keep this from happening. Next question. Uh, what is my greatest victory? I don't know. I mean, I can think of, you know, are you talking about my politi greatest political victory? Are you talking about my greatest personal achievement? I'll tell you, I'll answer it this way. I haven't read it. Uh, I'll, I, I just haven't read it, Zach. Um, but I'll tell you this. My greatest the greatest decision that I ever made was moving to New York City. And I don't know how I made that decision because I didn't think about it. I just did it. The greatest decision I ever made was moving to New York City. It turned my life around. It changed my life. And if I hadn't made that decision, if I had made that decision, I would be a much more miserable person than I am now. So much of my life has improved since since I came to this city 11 years ago, it'll be 11 years ago this December, I came to this city on a Greyhound bus. And that was 11 years ago. Best decision I ever made by far. That was a great victory um, because 
I I moved way ahead. It's been 10 years of moving upward and getting shit done and feeling better about myself. And yeah, so there you go. Is the Frankfurt School blame, to blame for wokeism? Well, the Frankfurt School is a, is a school of Marxist thought. It was in West Germany. Um, you know, Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, they're associated with it. They're part of it, but they got CIA subsidies. I mean, look, they would never have become what they were without CIA and British, you know, financial support. It hadn't been for the fact that there was huge efforts to promote them and and publicize their message as a way of subtly inserting anti-communism uh, into, uh, into left-wing circles, then they never would have become a thing. All right, I think uh, that's all the questions we've got. Someone asked me about the Kennedy brothers. I don't know. Someone asked me about a Hegel book. I don't know. I really appreciate you all. Uh, it's been a fun stream. We almost went for two hours. I thought it'd be short, but that's not how it worked out. But that's okay, guys, because I love you all. We're a great community here. I'll be back tomorrow. I've got a nice interview I'm doing tomorrow. Uh, it should be around six. I'm going to be doing an interview tomorrow, but I love you all. I really do. We're a great community. Uh, we're building a community of solidarity. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. The danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, but revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.